Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 95. We have a great show for you today because I am speaking with Rick Radford and Ann Hewitt, and we're talking about pasteurization. So you might be asking yourself, what does pasteurization have to do with you? What does pasteurization have to do with sterile processing? Well, if you don't know, then I suggest you stick around with us and find out. Again, we have a great discussion, so let's not waste any more time, and let's get to it. Well, thank you, Ann and Rick, for joining me on the show today. It's great to be here, John. We're really glad to be here with you. So we're talking about pasteurization, and I'll be honest, when I think of pasteurization, I kind of think of that 2% milk that I buy at the grocery store every week. So what is pasteurization and really how does it work? Uh, thanks for the question, uh, John. It, it's a great one. As it applies to medicine, it's a little bit of a confusing term. I'm sure that Louis Pasteur, where the name came from, never heard the term because it wasn't applied until sometime afterwards. So pasteurization is kind of like a brand that has grown around food decontamination. And uh, it is, of course, uh, a product of Pasteur looking at uh, various food substances and things that would spoil, microorganisms would spoil food. And he made enormous contributions in discovering that. In fact, it really was the beginning of the germ theory of medicine and of health. But the term pasteurization really has to do with food processing, but it's been injected into the medical literature uh, because some of the processes are the same. Louis Pasteur, um, around 1860, uh, did a lot of work based on needs in France in the agricultural industry. Wine, certainly, but there was a lot of livestock that were involved in, and he developed thermal disinfection techniques uh, that could suppress both uh, microorganisms as well as viruses. And he actually developed um, vaccines that in fact became um, critical to the economy of France. And in fact, uh, it, it was such an economic issue that the French government actually funded the Pasteur Institutes, which are all over the world uh, today. Uh, but there's a history of what is called pasteurization that goes back centuries, actually. In um, 1768, um, there was an Italian uh, scientist that discovered that he could heat beef broth and preserve it, extend its life. A pair in 17, uh, late 1700s developed jar canning with fruit and vegetables. An English guy 
uh, Durand in the early 1800s actually invented putting it into a tin can. And because when you put it in a tin can, they had to use a hammer and chisel to take the top off. A few years later, a guy by the name of Yates got a patent on the can opener. So <laughs> there's there's interesting stuff going on here in terms of the history of, of thermal disinfection uh, going on. In the 1100s, the Chinese actually used it for wine preservation. You know, 400 years later than that, the uh, Japanese documented the process and it was in a monk situation. We know that both uh, Eastern religions and Western religions, the monk led the way with wine. And uh, so they discovered it. I actually have done some reading about the effects of thermal energy in anthropologic terms. And there are uh, three or four years ago, there was a group of scientists that said that uh, human intelligence probably would not have evolved had it not been for fire. They were able to cook their food, which would thermally degrade it so that there was actually more energy available to allow neurologic evolution. If you think of, of primates, they sit around and chew bark all day because they can't digest it enough to give them leisure time to grow a bigger brain. <laughs> so this is a long process, but it fundamentally pasteurization is a subset of thermal disinfection. And there's a continuum, I think, that in terms of time and temperature that affects uh, different organisms and um, uh, and different processes that can be used. So pasteurization has definitely been around for a while, but how long has this practice been involved in healthcare? So before I became a nurse, I was a history major in college. So I love talking about this kind of thing. And thermal disinfection goes back to at least the hundreds, the 100s to early 200s in the common era, and with the physician Galen, who was using aseptic techniques, using thermal disinfection for his rather primitive surgical tools. So the concept of thermal disinfection is really old. Pasteurization, the way we're talking about it, dating to Pasteur is more recent, but before there were these now nearly ubiquitous single-use devices made from plastic. Pasteurization was common in healthcare. I'd say, well, let's see, I'm 29. I know for sure it's older <laughs> than I am and probably goes to at least the 40s, okay. maybe, maybe earlier than that. So what type of medical equipment or devices typically undergo a pasteurization process in the healthcare setting? Well, I think that um, the first commercial pasteurizers were developed. In fact, they were developed in my area that were applied to anesthesia and respiratory care products. 
studies were done and published. Nelson and Ryan, probably in the um, early 1980s, and a local company in Seattle came out with a device that would pasteurize these devices, and it they were sold around the world. And the nice thing that there's different types of pasteurization. There's pasteurization where uh, you can run fluids, milk, soup, through a tube and uh, control the temperature with, you know, heat exchangers and so on. And there's another type of pasteurization called VAT pasteurization, which certainly was part of the early use of pasteurizing uh, milk and creation of cheese and that sort of thing. And what the people did in the 80s is that they chose that type pasteurization. It's essentially a tank that you can put into the tank any number of odd-shaped devices and tubes. And, um, you know, they can be metal, they can be plastic, uh, they could be glass, they could be fabrics. Uh, elastomers, like if you think of all the tubings uh, that are going in. In fact, I know that um, one of the third-party processors that I was involved in, we used um, a pasteurizer to do sequential compression devices and extend their use. In fact, I even put croupettes inside the tank to high-level disinfect. It, so it, it really is how big is your vat? and for the devices you want to put into it. And the second part of it is, what is the, what is the mechanism that you're using for uh, mixing it up, uh, you know, so that it can be um, thoroughly, uh, the temperature can get to all parts of the, de the device. And uh, the, the fact that pasteurization as it exists in uh, medical pasteurizers, high level distant thermal infectors, it's the volume, and it's also the automated character of it. You know, you could have a, a vat of hot water that you would dump devices into, but then you have the issue of how long is it in there and what is the temperature? So with the advent of uh, medical pasteurizers, high level thermal disinfectors, you could have control systems. And of course, as everybody knows, if you're disinfecting something, you need to proceed that with cleaning. The new systems can have um, appropriate cleaning cycle where you have any number of cleaning agents that you would put in. You have to control the dilution that it's in there so that you can effectively establish that it is clean using national standards. And then, of course, the time and temperature regulation for the pasteurization part. So it, it was an evolution of discovering not only time and temperature for specific organisms that the FDA would see as the correct organisms to establish that this was effective, but then putting the control systems in to make sure the cleaning was right, the timing was right, the temperature was right. And in the case of pasteurization, that all the devices were fully immersed uh, in the device. So there's a lot of lot of devices that can cook that we don't even think about. I got to tell you, 
my first experience with pasteurization came when I was working in quality and regulatory for a, a healthcare system. And, you know, there was this clinic and they used this pasteurization and they used uh, this on uh, respiratory tubing. And like I said, this was my very first time dealing with this. And so the clinical technicians actually kind of educated me on the process. You know, they the, the advantages for them were that the, the clinic didn't have to use uh, chemical disinfectants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've ever used a manual process to high-level disinfection with chemicals, you know, th- there's a lot of stuff you have to go through. There's, there's uh, of course, the, the chemicals themselves, right? Uh, testing and storage. But there's also environmental things like air exchanges, air pressures. There's lots of education involved. I'm, I'm not trying to knock uh, manual chemical disinfection, but in this situation, that pasteurization really was a good fit for that clinic. Now, why am I telling you this story? It's because I think uh, as sterile processing professionals, we may not use this, we may not have had experience, but I think it's always important because we are the cleaning, disinfection, and sterilization professionals that we understand the technology, we understand what's out there, and we're able to speak to it when there are other clinics and or areas in our hospital that may use this technology. Uh, and so I think it's really important for us to be aware of what it is and, and you know, be able to speak to it and, and advise on it uh, if called upon. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to knock the chemical <laughs> business because early in my career, we used Cydex. Stuff, and I distinctly remember looking into a sink full of Cydex and having rubber gloves on, moving the devices inside this to make sure that, you know, there were no bubbles and so on. And um, and my eyes are watering. And when, as a therapist, I would give aerosol treatments or something, I would actually induce bronchospasm because there was residual Cydex on this stuff. So it's one of the reasons that we are committed to pasteurization, having been there, having experienced, you know, the effects of toxic chemicals and and then putting them down the drain. You know, it's pure water. That's what pasteurization offers you. And it is through thermal means that we are causing um, cellular disruption not um, through toxic chemicals. And what, what's your feeling about that? Well, I completely agree. And I have been in many GI labs in the past, quite some time ago. Most of them are not using manual high-level disinfection with glutaraldehyde anymore. But know that profound smell that glutaraldehyde has and how noxious it is. And it is a tissue fixative, which is probably why it, and it's clingy, right. <laughs> if I may say that. The thought of inducing a bronchospasm in a patient you're trying to treat breaks my heart. That's all, first of all, bronchospasm is a horrible thing no matter what, but to do that to the patient. So yes, I, I agree with that and think that the unusual benefit of thermal Pure thermal disinfection means that you're not worried about doing any harm through a chemical interaction to your devices. Well, another, just another comment, John, about that. 
And, and when you're using some of these chemical things, one of the requirements would be to aerate them afterwards. You know, you would you would put them in an aeration chamber and they were using um, our drying chambers as aerators. We'd have elevated temperatures, but it would mean your inventory would be tied up again. And, you know, it might be 24 hours. You know, in the case of ethylene oxide, uh, it, it was a real problem. And of course, ethylene oxide uh, was uh, toxic. I think it was related to problems with pregnant women. And so moving away from any form of chemical uh, disinfection, I think, is the right direction to move. So we talked a little bit about some of the differences from pasteurization and chemical disinfection. What are some of the other differences in the in the disinfection modalities? You know, John, I think that an interesting misunderstanding is when we're talking disinfection, high-level disinfection is just high-level disinfection. It's defined by the FDA and the CDC, so there's a single standard for achieving high-level disinfection, no matter how you're doing it. In Galen's time, maybe they were putting things on hot rocks. I'm not sure. I wasn't, I'm not that old. For a long time, we used chemical disinfection because the chemicals work. They're biocidal. They just come along with other drawbacks. The definition involves killing or eradication of all microbial life, except for a small number of spores. That is high-level disinfection. So there's really no difference in the death of the microbes with pasteurization versus chemical disinfection. I think it's easier to do it with pasteurization because it's, it's harder to do it wrong. Like it's, it's hot water. You don't have to mix it. You don't have to vent it. You don't have to check its concentration. It's mm-hmm. hot water. Hot water thermally disinfects. So that's my way of looking at it. HLD is HLD. Whether it's thermal, it's chemical, you could do it with dry heat. Yeah, Anne, and I totally agree with that. Those are good insights. I think that There's another part that modern pasteurization for medical devices offers is that with chemical disinfectants, even today, there is no control system for using them. What if you got a timer on the the counter next to the bucket you're putting it in and somebody is uh, off doing something else? Uh, You don't know what the temperature is in the environment and, and time and temperature, even for liquid disinfectants is relevant. In the case of a modern pasteurizer, it's all under computer control. It meets all of the standards. It has outcomes that are testable and they're testable by the computer. It is not user dependent in terms of knowing that the outcome has met all the standards. Not only that, you have records. You know, modern pasteurizers will produce a record that documents the entire system. And certainly uh, the FDA wants that and ask people who have uh, someone from the Joint Commission come by. They want records. If it isn't documented, it didn't happen. And uh, modern technology um, with computer controlled systems that are applied to pasteurization work. And there are advances in computer science and communication that uh, mean that it's going to continually get better. And it also takes the responsibility of reaching the correct endpoint 
off the practitioner. They don't have to do it. They're not scribbling down numbers on a, um, a you know, a water splattered notebook that's beside uh, the bucket that contains, uh, you know, the devices. So it's it is the correct way to go. It meets all of the high level objectives, as Anne has pointed out, for high level disinfection, and it fits into um, our increasingly the uh, requirement for documentation in a healthcare setting. John, I would like to just point out that what Rick was just describing is fairly common in the areas where we're seeing pasteurization used the most. That would be like a sleep lab or a respiratory department. Occasionally, if anesthesia has its own little subspace in the sterile processing department, we might see it. I have a lot of experience working with people in GI and endoscopy, and they now typically will use automated processes for the exact reasons that Rick described. And so it isn't that it's not present in hospital settings and ambulatory surgery centers and GI centers. It is present for those places, but the more remote places are still likely to be manual. And that has so many drawbacks that pasteurization can resolve. And I can, I cannot comment further on that. Um, uh, I was involved in a, as a third party reprocessor and we used pasteurization and it allowed us to meet the GMPs that were expected of a company offering third-party reprocessing. Uh, We were doing all kinds of anesthesia, respiratory care, sequential compression devices, taking in for companies that were repairing electronic instrumentation that might be in surgery that had blood spattered on them and they would pull the boards and we would pasteurize them so that it could be replaced back into the instrument to be used in a surgical suite. Hmm. And so this speaks to the uh, versatility of pasteurization across so many different devices and situations. And I have become committed to controlling these processes so that even many of the devices that third-party reprocessors are doing now probably could be done at the local level and the hospital level save on diesel fuel, on packaging, on so many things that would reduce the expense to the hospital and significantly reduce the impact on the environment. Uh, we, we even have uh, one of the major third-party reprocessors using our system to high-level clean and high-level disinfect EEG leads, and it's saving so much money. Uh, I would encourage hospitals to simply make a list of all just the plastic devices in the hospital and come up with a plan, do a a Pareto analysis of where they're gonna get the most bang for the buck to put it through internal reprocessing rather than single patient use or even sending it to a third party reprocessor. Now I'm I'm not in any way trying to uh, degrade the importance of third-party reprocessing. They serve a vital uh, mission in helping hospitals reduce cost and totally support them. Uh, But there are even items that they can't do at the same cost that it could be done in the hospital. So safety and economics uh, certainly point in the direction of having local high-level disinfection at the hospital level 
and um, and save money. Well, that kind of leads me into my next question of safety. What are the benefits of pasteurization in terms of safety and infection prevention? Well, you mentioned something already, John, about the requirements for doing proper manual high-level disinfection with chemicals. You need the right venting. You need to have cleaning sinks because, as Rick said earlier, you got to clean it. And we, mm-hmm. All of us who have worked in sterile processing know if it isn't clean, you can't do anything to it to make it patient safe. So you need cleaning sinks. You need the right storage containers. You have probably have to have an eyewash station to meet code. And you need more than just that little timer going, oh, I think I left it in there long enough, you know, that (laughs) you need a good way to control the process. So the safety issue to me is tied up with, I might do it really well on a Monday morning after I'd gotten a relaxing weekend and lots of sleep, but by Friday afternoon, I might do a really not so good job (laughs) because I'm tired. And I'm thinking about, I need to go home and go to bed. So I think there's that human error factor that has to be considered as part of safety and infection prevention. I just like everything to be as automated as possible. And I'm pretty much of a tree hugger. So the whole aspect of not having to use toxic chemicals and not have to risk exposure of any patient or any person down the continuum of the sewage department to the toxic chemicals that are in glutaraldehyde and OPA, that's a big plus from my standpoint. And and I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think the re-emphasize over and over again, having automated controlled processes so that you know that the outcomes are consistent. And if you're using chemicals like water, you simply aren't concerned. And the people in the metro departments of cities aren't concerned. You're discharging water into the sewer. And the sewer, the sewer is designed to accept and process biological waste. So you're working with nature in all of this. Whereas if you're using chemicals of any kind, those go in. And I have another product that I was developing that it, it actually discharged blood and secretion from suction containers into the sewer. And I called the sewer departments around the country and they said, now, what are you putting in there? What are you putting into the sewer? And I would explain to him, oh, OK, that's I thought you were discharging the chemicals into the mm-hmm. sewer. No, just the content, uh, you know, the blood and so on. And they said, yes, we're designed for that sort of thing but we don't want any chemicals that will kill our bugs that degrade biological waste. Sure. So the, the safety goes a long ways in using clean high-level disinfection processes. And, and I think there's another uh, larger issue relative to safety of using clean, environmentally reducing things. When you are reprocessing devices, you're not throwing away the packaging on each single patient use, increase in safety. You aren't putting diesel fuel into the atmosphere with all the logistics and getting them there. You are reducing the opportunity, accidents in logistics, 
and in the warehousing and distribution of the thing. So it, this has broad breaching. You know, this is probably a long conversation about <laughs> the externalities of, um, you know, going back to the future using water and not these very expensive, complex and destructive uh, high level disinfection techniques. So earlier you talked about pouring chemicals down the drain. I have a, I have a story and it, and it involves my wife. Now, hopefully she doesn't get upset with me. I hope you when, haven't poured her down the drain. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I have not. But when she was training in the operating room, uh, there was an educator at the time and she was showing her how to dispose of a certain chemical. I use this chemical all the time. I knew how harmful it was. I knew that you had to be very careful when you disposed of it because there were clear instructions in the IFU of what you were supposed to do. And there was a process behind it and it was very detailed. I'm convinced that the educator had no idea that there were instructions for use of how to use this. And they used a mop bucket. They filled it up with water and then tried to dilute it in this mop bucket. When they went to open the chemical, immediately their eyes started burning. Right. They, they started to be, like we talked earlier, that respiratory distress from these these chemicals. In fact, uh, I, my wife said she had to go use the eye wash station just from opening this and before disposing of it. And so, you know, I think this is a great example that chemicals can be harmful. If we're not trained on how to use them properly, you know, it's it, it can be very harmful to us and employees and, and even patients. And so you really have to understand, I think, the benefits and harms when you start dealing with chemicals and things like that. John, you, you point out another aspect of uh, using a simple process. Chemical has a, there's a 12-step program for getting rid of chemicals. <laughs> and hospital people have got hundreds of 12-step programs that they need to go through. I think that it, we need to be looking for the simplest possible effective solution. And for people using, you know, our uh, cleaning and high level disinfection system, they push the on button and they walk away and then it alerts them when it's done. It even doesn't allow them to get into the system when the interior is still warm. When it's ready, they can, uh, the, the lid is released and they can empty the things that are clean and high level disinfected. It's, it's a two-step program, three steps, load it, push the on button, and then empty it. Now we talked about this uh, a little bit, but environmental sustainability, in my opinion, is, is an extremely hot topic. And I think there are several areas in sterile processing where facilities really start looking and researching of how they can reduce the environmental impact in their department. In your opinion, what role does pasteurization play in this type of movement? I think both of us see it as having a profound impact because it allows people to reprocess rather than use single-use devices. That in and of itself means much less extractive technology being used, less shipping taking place, 
certainly better control of the supply chain, which is not necessarily an environmental thing, but it's maybe your internal environment that's a little more peaceful if you know you're not ooh, waiting on a ship that's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or couldn't get out of China during the pandemic. And the packaging that doesn't have to take place and get thrown away and just the amount of plastic trash that comes out of healthcare facilities every day is mind-boggling, staggering, I could say. So pasteurization allows the use of reusable devices instead of single-use devices, and it helps eliminate all sorts of wasteful practices that sound like they're a great idea in 1983, maybe, but are a terrible idea in 2023 or are going to be a terrible idea in 2033. T totally agree. It, it is, uh, it's a simple solution for a global problem. You can't read any paper during a week where the plastic problem isn't discussed. The petrol business is based on plastics. And as we reduce the use of plastic, the petrol companies will still be in business because they're making, I mean, on fuel, that they will still be using it for plastics. And the costs will be going up. And, you know, I know there's a lot of work being done on having plastics that are biodegradable and so on. Years away for that to be a meaningful solution. Again, it's parsimony, a simple solution. Just use water, use cleaning agents that are totally biodegradable. And it is, and it turns out that, you know, if you look at all of the externalities of the cost uh, associated with uh, particularly single patient use devices, as Anna said, packaging, shipping, diesel fuel, all of those are contributing to contamination of our environment and so on get to the simple solutions go back to the future just just wash it and heat it up it's fine so before our conversation today you'd mentioned that you had recently attended the clean med conference can you tell our listeners a little bit about that conference we both loved it <laughs> I, i would say for me it felt like i was in a cult But it was a good cult. It was just exciting to be with so many people who were focused on sustaining our natural environment through improving healthcare practices. Like these, it's not either or, it's both and. And I, mm -hmm. I really like that. There were fabulous sessions, an excellent variety, so many, three or four days, wasn't it, Rick, that we were there? Yeah, yes. Uh, from all over the US, these success stories about individual facilities had done, we mostly were focusing on processing because that's an area of expertise and interest for us, but they talk about food waste, they talk about transportation and how to manage better the transportation issues within a hospital system or a healthcare system. And one of the things I thought was really wonderful was to hear about stories like this from places such as Idaho, where you might not naturally think, oh, they're really into going green. But we heard a presentation given by an emergency room doctor, and he laughingly said, you wouldn't expect to hear this from Idaho, hmm. but everybody was really on board. And here's what we did. 
it was really exciting. I can't wait to go back next year. It was it was really it was the best cult I've ever been a part of. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I will add to Anne's enthusiasm because I know at at one point I was just putting in the bringing in the environment and the feelings I was having in this uh, at this um, event, and I realized everybody there was emotionally involved with what they were doing. They were they want to fix the environment. They want to contribute to the reduction of waste. And there was an emotional enthusiasm. In fact, they had people dancing on the podium as part of the presentation that they were making. Hmm. And the three of us that were there, we said, you know, we have never been to a medical conference where there was this kind of positive energy, you know. You, people drone on about the latest little nitpick thing that they're changing and and then they argue about it and this and that. This was all positive energy. We are making a difference. I will comment that I I went to the Clean Med um, uh, program seven or eight years ago. And, you know, it was an organization that was just forming and people didn't know quite how to do it. And they didn't have the, the VPs of sustainability from large hospital chains there. It was just people were concerned and they needed to bring it along. They have brought it along. It is professional. It's meaningful. They're communicating well. They're initiating programs that will make a difference. And I would encourage um, anybody to go to this and sort of get out of the cocoon of the hospital and and see this educational movement uh, and how it will help us in healthcare do our part, not only as institutions, but to give us vehicles as individuals to make a difference. In, in fact, it's one of the things that I, I will advocate to individuals that I see and they say, well, sure, I would love to contribute to the, um, you know, the reduction of hospital waste and so on. Well, here's one thing you can do. You can reuse the instruments, reuse the products, reduce the effect on the environment. It empowers practitioners to be able to do something and to participate in the big job that needs to be done. When I got into, uh, as I said, I was a third party reprocessor for a while. There were numbers like 60, $70 billion a year going into the landfill of single patient use devices. Mm. Take and wow. spread that number over all the hospitals in the country. How many more nurses, how many more technicians, how many more community outreach programs could be there with that waste? I was in Puerto Rico many years ago introducing pasteurization down there, and it was a village hospital. And after an hour of me discussing this, they were using single patient use because the big U.S. companies had convinced them that is the proper way to do it. There was a woman in the back of the room that began to weep. She realized that one single patient use device was a day's wages for some of the people there. 
and it would have meant the difference of outreach into the community. Wow. We, we get isolated. We don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. I donated one of our systems to a women's clinic in Africa. It changed the way they were doing things. They could have high-level disinfection right there in that little clinic, and it made a difference. So we need to have a global perspective to see what are the processes that we need to inject into healthcare and the practices and the new technology that gives us good process control, good outcomes, effective cleaning and disinfection for better outcomes. So money is always in the conversation when folks start looking at new processes. In fact, when I manage the sterile processing department, you know, financial stewardship is always a performance goal on my annual evaluation. From your experience, can you talk about the benefits of pasteurization and what, how those benefits can affect the bottom line of a department? We've been talking about single-use devices and they're expensive. It, mm -hmm. One of them is inexpensive, but the whole concept of single-use devices is that you're buying lots of them over and over again. Just writing purchase orders is expensive. I've seen estimates that one PO in a hospital costs about $200 all in to take place. So if you're writing them, even if you've got a standing order, you still have to do the paperwork for it. Shipping is expensive. Storage is expensive because it takes up the resource of space that could maybe be allocated to something else. Waste disposal, it costs something. Different places have different prices, but I'm gonna say it's expensive. The more, the bigger the volume is, the more expensive it is. And just managing the logistics takes more time and time is money. Well, if you've got reusables, you know what your inventory is, you're pasteurizing it or you're sterilizing it and you are reusing it and you've got a process that's circular as opposed to linear and every point on the line costs money. Then we have Sleep Center customer who said, we paid for our pasteurizer in less than eight months and everything after that because they were no longer buying single-use devices. So the money that they'd been spending, they now had put into their pasteurizer and then it all fell to the bottom line. So we, as healthcare people, we should be paying attention to financial stewardship and be evaluated on it. Yes, doctors, that includes you too. <laughs> and this is a way to, to get at the crux of how you can manage things better and have more money in your bottom line for nurses, for outreach, for techs, for raises, for everyone. Well, another way to look at this as a businessman I went into third-party reprocessing. It was possible. It was the right thing to do, and it was also profitable. And all the profit that went to the third-party reprocessor, in some cases, could have stayed with the hospitals. It makes business sense. The major uh, third-party reprocessors in the U.S. and uh, becoming global, they understand. This is a profitable business and all of that is good. And they were able to bring the capital and the processes and the finances together to create that business. 
in many cases, the same business story can be made for placing pasteurizers in the hospital because there is a, you know, there's 10 or 15 or 20 devices that don't lend themselves to being shipped across the country to go to a third-party reprocessor. Economic returns to the hospital. One of the things that makes it more difficult for hospitals in making these decisions and typically when a capital request goes forward, capital dollars always uh, in competition for one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure that central reprocessing departments are at the head of the line in that. I'm sure they're not. Usually not. (laughs) But but one of the things that's missing, and I actually um, made this recommendation to healthcare purchasing news, is that there should be a, among the purchasing agents, a standard model for evaluating what all the costs are for a device that is going to be either the reprocessed devices or that are going to be reprocessed and to include the externalities, the packaging, the shipping, the, the freight, the inventory costs and everything, because it becomes the source of paying back the capital expense. If you put all of those costs in there, you know, maybe you buy Uh, something for $20. Well, it's actually $35 when you put all of the other things into it. Hey, let's pause this conversation for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you are in the right place. To receive the one-hour CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code hazardous chemicals. Again, the code for this episode is hazardous chemicals. Now let's get back to our conversation. So we talked a little bit about reprocessors, third-party reprocessors. From your experience, can you talk about or speak to some of the other advantages that processing devices in-house bring versus the third-party vendor? As a registered nurse myself, I one of the things that I note is that Reusable devices many times are made to be durable. They should be made to be durable. There maybe is a little finer craftsmanship that goes into them, or they may have slightly different materials than single-use plastics. So you're going to get better performance with them compared to single-use devices. This is sometimes true. Can't square to it all the time, but with single-use flexible endoscopes versus reusable flexible endoscopes. And so if you are reprocessing your reusable devices in-house, as opposed to throwing them in the waste stream, you are going to be able to have better quality. Then now that's not exactly your question because you're asking about third-party processing, but to be able to have things right where you want them and need them and you know that they're yours and you know they're in good working order, I think is a, a great thing. The flip side of that, for third-party vendors that become certified by the FDA or cleared as a remanufacturer for single-use device processing, it's very expensive. And Rick, you have a lot more experience with this than I do, so you might want to say something about that. I see it as high-quality, reusable things in my own facility versus sending out single-use devices. It's two sides of the coin. Neither is better or worse. 
and third-party reprocessors uh, need to go through the scrutiny of becoming registered and demonstrate that their GMPs make it an equivalent product after reprocessing. And, and I think uh, third-party reprocessing is a wonderful, terrific advantage, uh, addition to the repertoire of way hospitals can assure safe next use. As I said before, they have the capital to put in the equipment and develop the processes and logistics to do that. And it's very, very meaningful uh, that hospitals have uh, that right. In fact, uh, uh, we met the uh, director of the AMDR. Clean Med. Yes, Clean, he's Clean actually Med, the president. Right. He's and not just was, a director, was, he's the president. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was terrific to uh, meet him and discuss with him their role, and he was enthusiastic. He talks about the savings. He has the numbers to show the savings that third-party reprocessors bring to uh, healthcare and the thinking because uh, and the strategizing because those things aren't available typically in a hospital to to be able to address this at a, a, a larger scale. And so I'm very much in favor of the use of third-party reprocessors and, and addressing what Ann said about the devices most single patient use items, devices, just by their very nature and the way they're engineered and the materials they're used can be processed more than once. And I've gone through the testing of many of these uh, to demonstrate, you know, plastic wall thicknesses have to be a certain dimension uh, to be able to go into the plastic mold. and. That dimension means they can be reprocessed more than once and used more than once. It's just how many cycles. I think that uh, over time, we're going to see that many of these devices, whether branded or labeled single patient use or not, we will find ways to reprocess them. And it's gonna be either with a third party reprocessor or it's going to be in the hospital, uh, depending on um, the commitment that the hospitals want to make uh, for capitalizing, reprocessing them in the hospital. It'll be a business decision, but the, the number of devices is vast and there is a spectrum of quality um, in those devices that um, I think over time will be sorted out. It's, it's going to take the commitment to make the right business decision, to make the, the, the decision about how much is the cost per use rather than the cost per item. And um, uh, the work that I've done, the cost per use can certainly be reduced if it's done on site. And pasteurization is a wonderful uh, mechanism uh, for reprocessing in the hospital that can reduce ultimate costs. Well, last question. Is there any other advice that you would like to share to our listeners about pasteurization or even the environmental impact of pasteurization? When I first came to working with Rick, I realized one thing that I would want them to know, and that is that pasteurization is not just for milk anymore. 
I agree with that. In fact, uh, John, I have sort of coined a phrase about what we offer, and it's eco-processing. It's ecological and it's economical. Um, It brings all of those things together that your outcome means that you can have an effective cleaning and disinfection process that both contributes to your sustainability efforts as well as your financial efforts in the hospital. I certainly experienced at the Clean Med conference that uh, while they didn't know the term that we had coined, it was in their heart. They, they, they wanted to do the right thing. And I feel that um, cleaning and the use of uh, thermal high-level disinfection using pasteurization is a very effective tool and pathway to move the world in the right direction. Well, Ann and Rick, thank you so much for sharing with us today. You've given us lots of good information, lots of things to think about. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, John. Well, that music means only one thing, and I am sorry to say that we are out of time for today. It was a great conversation. So again, a big thank you to Rick and Ann for sharing with us today. So if you would like more information on pasteurization, if you still have questions, if you want to find some more information about it, you can go to Cinerin.com. That's C-E-N-O-R-I-N.com. Again, that's C-E-N-O-R-I-N.com. Great people. They would love to talk to you, answer any questions that you may have. HSPA episode number 95 is in the books. We're done for today. Thanks for sticking around with us. Just so you know, each of these episodes are on demand. So when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy and we'll see you next time.